Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hey everyone, it's Kate, and this is episode 37. Today I'm going to talk about physics in fiction um, and how to layer stories um, with a few different concepts in physics. Now, of course, as always, this isn't going to be exhaustive, but I've got kind of a taster set of ideas about quarks, black holes, parallel universes, and time. Um, And today for the spaces and places section at the end, I'll be looking at cafes with you, as well as a book that makes use of some of these ideas in physics in the setting of a cafe. Uh, So this should be a bit of fun. I don't know how many of of you out there are physicists or very interested in physics or have some kind of background in it. Um... I am far from an expert in physics. You know, I took AP physics in high school and one course at university, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And actually, a lot of the ideas that I'm talking about today and some of the concepts that I've sort of played around with in fiction um, are well beyond the kind of stuff that, that I learned at that time. So, I mean, I find it really interesting to look at some of those books that are made for um, sort of like a mass audience, I guess you could say, um, about physics, such as I really loved The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. Um, I've read a few of Stephen Hawking's books, of course, the the really famous one, A Brief History of Time. Um, and I just love to think about Um, what the ideas that they present us with um, mean in terms of our daily lives, our place in the universe, and the way we understand um, things like consciousness, for example, or how we experience time. Yeah, so I'd love to hear in the comments on Substack what your favorite books about physics are. I'm going to include a couple of links if you're looking for ideas. I really should read Carlo Rovelli. I've I've seen a few of his videos and I love his work. Um, And yeah, I'm curious what else is out there. I think it's it's time that I got back to another um, book about physics and, you know, maybe and especially updated ones because a lot of these theories are often being um, debated and, and changed. And I think it's really interesting to see the different sides, which I'll look at a little bit today. Um, like I said, kind of a taster. So I, I also, when I was doing research for today's podcast, I came across some work looking at crime writers and physics and the intersection um, of this interest. Apparently, a lot of crime novelists are also physicists um, in one form or another. And um, interesting because, you know, I'm very interested in physics and I'm working on a psychological thriller. Hmm, I don't know if there's any real link there, but it did fascinate me. Um, And in that article, I'll link for you, it says physics is about trying to understand the world around us and the forces at work that make the world believe the way it behaves. I can see the connection to crime writing. It's difficult to write convincingly about any universe unless you understand your protagonists and what, why they do what they do. You've laid out a universe, you've laid out the rules of your universe in your head, and you have the characters bang around inside that, obeying those rules. Now, I would say that that probably applies to more than just crime novels, probably to all um, novels or even all fictions, at least the way that I see them as kind of puzzles of puzzles of ideas and, um, you know, as I talk about here, layers of reality and how you can make meaning from that, how you can make a story from that, what it has to do with our real lives and our perception of it. So in this novel that I'm sharing with you now, A Hong Kong Story, 
part of what I'm doing is using this unknown voice that appears in these italicized um, episodes. Um, and it's as if this voice is sometimes coming from a parallel universe. Um, the time is a little bit unclear as well with this voice. And there are a few explanations for who or what it could be, but I'll leave that for you to determine. Um, I also make use of the metaphor of the black hole at times. Um, I question the preconceptions of time and pretty much all of the characters um, that I include, I would describe as some kind of what I term as quirkism, um, which has to do with instability and inv invisibility. So you've probably never heard that term before because it's one that I made up in my dissertation. So unless it's caught on somewhere in the world and I am unaware of it. Um, it's It's got a very niche uh, space in academic circles, perhaps very, very, very niche. Um, so a quark, according to space.com, is the ultimate building block of visible matter in the universe. And if we could zoom in on an atom in your body, this is quoted from space.com, we would see that it consists of electrons swarming in orbits around a nucleus of protons and neutrons. And if we could zoom in on one of these protons or neutrons, we'd find that they themselves are made up of a trio of particles that are so small that they have almost no size at all and are, are little more than points. These point-like particles are the quarks, and they're in this kind of, this state of constant um, motion as well. Now, the word quark um, in the world of physics actually came from one of my favorite authors, James Joyce, who um, used this word to describe some kind of strange and unruly children in his experimental novel, Finnegan's Wake. So uh, interesting choice of vocabulary by the physicist. Um, in my... In my um, dissertation when I talk about quarkisms, um, I just, I bring it up in this way. So I present the ability of the immigrant to become, capital B, to navigate an elliptical space of play as the essential human right that should be afforded. There is an instability that must be embraced, though it can also cause a dangerous implosion. Extending from the idea of the Delusian nomad, I label the group of individuals who are mentally and physically unstable in relation to their urban dwelling as quarkisans, a nomadic and ephemeral uprootedness, which may become an advantage or a barrier. The quark is a term borrowed from quantum physics, which in turn was coined from a nonsensical word in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. The strangeness of its sound and lack of a rooted identity make it a suitable term for people who are, like the quark, full of energy and importance in the structure of the world, though they remain invisible. We can only see quarks if they are in large groups, just as we may choose to only see marginalized people as parts of public visible groups. So I'm not really talking about marginalized groups per se in my um in my novel, but there's still um, elements of invisibility, um, I would say, in, in any urban space by the people who dwell within it. And as people take shape in, in kind of group form, different groups and maybe multiple groups they may be a part of, um, not necessarily a formal group, right, but by culture in some way. Um, then they become more visible. We can return to invisibility and issues surrounding immigrants of all types later on, but um, you might want to consider how stable your characters are due to their own feelings about the self, um, due to the laws that may impact them, due to their movement within space and time, um, whether by choice or because something happens to them. Um, maybe just think about that aspect of, of your characters. So I'm just going to move on from Quark because um, that's sort of an unusual one, which perhaps you can find in other literature in different ways. And, you know, I talk about these Quarkisans in a, in a lot of films and several novels as well um, in, that, in that academic work. So 
Um, you know, I could go on about it, but I want to talk about a few other things today. So let's look at black holes for a moment. Now, again, we may need a definition. You know, we've all heard of black holes, but like, what is it really? And actually, um, some of the ideas about black holes have, have changed in the last few years by scientists as well. So black holes are made of matter packed so tightly that gravity overwhelms all of their forces. Let's look at what the University of Chicago um, does to define it. When you pick up a bowling ball, it's heavy because the matter is densely packed. If you packed more and more mass into the same tiny space, eventually it would create gravity so strong that it would exert a significant pull on passing rays of light. Black holes are created when massive star collapse at the end of their lives, and perhaps under other circumstances that we don't know about yet. One of the first steps toward the discovery of black holes was made at the University of Chicago, um, looking at the way that massive stars would have to collapse after they ran out of fuel for the fusion reactions, which kept them hot and bright. And then I've also got a link for you guys called What is a Black Hole from NASA for grades K to 4. So if things are feeling a little confusing, and I'll come back to this idea of a child's perspective in these, in these realms um, a little bit later on with parallel universes, um, you know, this is... This is a great link to start from as well. Um, and with a black hole, you know, we often think metaphorically in literature of like this, this deep space that a person might be in in their psyche that just they can't really see a way out. It feels like everything is imploding in on them and even external factors seem to be almost entering their mind and just moving into this destructive place, right? So sometimes we think of them um, metaphorically that way. And, and I think the term appears quite a lot in, in literature. But if you look at um, a recent video from Stephen Hawking, well, a few years ago, just not long before his death, um, he tells us that there is a way out. Um, so he talks about new research in black holes. Um, and he talks about um, this idea of the destruction not being not being finite and that things actually come out of black holes. And what's really interesting is at the end of this two minute video, um, he makes it he makes it metaphorical and he talks about how, you know, there is hope for people who feel like they're in a black hole, that they need to hold on to this hope um, and the the light kind of at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Um, you know, and I think if you if you know much about his life or you saw um, the film about his life, you know, there, it doesn't paint everything about him in, in a positive light, but it does show how he, he persevered, um, you know, through this terrible illness that he had. And not only um, did he accomplish great work and research and achieve fame and write all these books, um, even with his disabilities, his, his really extreme severe ones, um, but he... He also found um, he also found a way to be happy, at least on one level through that. Um, at least that's what he talks about in in a lot of his work. And so, I mean, the character in my novel at some points could use that advice from Stephen Hawking, um, and probably in a lot of yours, if they're going through some kind of um, internal conflict as characters tend to do. Um, so here's just a short part of what I say in the last chapter I shared with you. The desire to go was overwhelming. She didn't know where, a move, a holiday, a state of mind, hell. Her journal that was meant to heal had become a long, sad rant of her existence. She tried doodling instead while waiting for the breakfast, but it came out just as spirals circling deeper and deeper, the ink heavier, reaching through the other pages as if jumping from one parallel universe to another, a black hole her own, created by herself as she created the right reality of her mind. This black hole was truly dangerous. It was eating her up. She felt like she was looking at herself from a distance, seeing someone who was isolating herself. It wasn't just now. It had been happening for months, maybe longer. It was really difficult to pinpoint the start where she had been duped or given up. So of course you can use black holes um, more literally in like a science fiction or you know, they are real. So you might have like a character who um, is working um, with, 
in the realm of physics or outer space in some way and you know that might enter into the story of course but it could also be like a science fiction um but additionally you know this is one one way that you can think of it in terms of a metaphor and it doesn't have to be so explicit you know you can think more about those kind of if it's an overwhelming idea or um a very strong sense of guilt or sadness or whatever it might be and the way it just kind of overtakes someone but also as Hawking said the way that there can be a way out and so I also often look at black holes in in opposition or juxtaposition with the concept of mise on a beam which I've also done a lot of work on so I'm not going to talk about it much today I'd really love to come back to this Um, in a whole episode with you guys later on. um, I've drawn on the work from André Gide, who was a really interesting thinker, philosopher, novelist. Um, He won the Nobel Prize in 1947. And he talks a lot about um, mise en abîme in connection with intertextuality. Um, And he kind of lays out this offering of of what mise en abîme means for him. And, you know, you can think about it both aesthetically and in terms of like um, a more figurative meaning. And so, you know, what is what is the concept of mise en abîme as in terms of, you know, the way that André Gide is it? It's, you can think of it quite, quite simply in terms of aesthetics as like, standing between two mirrors there's a there's a point in the film inception when this happens and then you see um infinite reflections of yourself on either side and that's kind of the the aesthetic of it and then he talks um often about the idea of the play within a play for example in hamlet so here's just a short quote um about his work, he offers the example of the play within a play in Hamlet. The second play reduplicates the subject of the work itself, causing the work to be self-reflective. The device suggests that underneath the play put on by the players, there could be another play in an infinitely recurring sequence or reflexivity. In Melville's novella, we witness both the denotation of juxtaposed power signifiers and more generally, the reiteration of narratives. Benito Serino is the author's retelling of chapter 18 from Amaso Delano's 1817 publication, Narrative of Voyages, itself a retelling of Don Benito Serino's 1804-1805 narrative about a slave revolt aboard, on board his ship. This is like an inversion. It's, it's kind of a seemingly nothingness. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's actually not, it's actually something in these duplications and these adaptations and these, these changes of stories over time. And I, um, I really love the way that, you know, this, this article, which I'll link for you there, talks about Benito Serino in that way. I think Benito Serino by Herman Melville is just, an amazing novella. Um, if you haven't encountered it before, I don't want to say too much about it because there's this sort of um, twist at the ending, at the end, which um, which will make you want to read it a second time. Um, and it, it reveals much more um, through that awareness and through that knowing. And I think that the way that Melville achieves this is partly because it is a retold story. And so he's he's really playing with language and images from the start, playing with the reflection of the expectations of the reader, and then um, springing it back to us, you know, and maybe Shakespeare is doing the same thing in, in Hamlet. There's a lot going on here. So like I said, I mean, I'll come back to that idea of mise en abîme, but I think, you know, you can see it in terms of this abîme is, is the abyss. So kind of putting out into the abyss, the the amplifying of something into the, into the abyss rather than collapsing of it into the black hole um, can be an aesthetic that can be a really useful tool um, in your in your writing. So finally, I'll just um, read a short quote from another article, this one by Deems Marion, um, about black holes and connecting them to trauma, in this case, um, 9-11 and the space of trauma where the Twin Towers fell, and also connecting it with this idea of, of doubling or 
the Freudian double or doppelgangers, which again is a, is a separate topic we can look at another time. But I think this article is maybe a really interesting to look one to look at in terms of black holes, both the literal space. I mean, it's not an actual black hole where the towers fell, right? And especially now because they've built um you know a whole whole center there with it's got a variety of things in it where the towers fell but that first space of of falling it becomes this kind of a black hole because it's not only physical space but it's also all the the ideas ideology the trauma the you know everything that that is connected to this even the falling of a an american dream so to speak these kinds of things as well um all collapsing into that space so he says, the semiotic black hole is the next step in fatality. It is the destruction of the whole sign and obliteration of a massive totemic paradox. In this case, utopia achieved. It is not merely a fait divers that comes to be seen as traumatic. It is a perfect catastrophe, a shocking, ineluctable event that radically transforms the socius, possessing a gravitational pull that has the power to massively reshape and remotivate even the political long assumed to be dead it now has been jolted into virtual activity as a spectral show of poll numbers morality plays and special effects so as you can probably tell by this paragraph there is a lot going on in that article um and i think it's just maybe you know if you're interested in this topic it's an interesting um point to to look at and just thinking about black holes in a more complex kind of way so um, I, in that passage I read to you from my novel, I actually connected it to the parallel universe. Um, and parallel universes are, are something that, I mean, a ton of authors use, especially in sci-fi, but not only. It's also used um, metaphorically. It's used in children's books. And it's such a, it's such a cool concept. And it's also a possibly real thing, right, in physics. So um, I just I just love looking at this idea. Um, and Brian Greene, um, the physicist who who writes for all of us, um, mentions some great films in his work when he's talking about parallel universes. He talks about The Wizard of Oz. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. That's probably my favorite favorite Christmas film. Uh, Run Lola Run, um, as well as the Borges story, The Garden of Forking Paths. Um, so I'd like to just start by looking at um, Borges for a moment. And, you know, this, the, his ideas of labyrinths um, can really help us to understand the, the way the labyrinths of the mind can become almost an internal parallel universe. And I think this is something that Italo Calvino does also to some extent, the Italian writer, um, novelist and and philosopher Borges specifically has some really really interesting ideas so I want to I want to read to you from the Garden of Fort of Forking Paths um, and then a short quote just from the New York Times so we can start thinking about you know what this what this might mean overall okay so I'm on page 125 of my book what you'll link for you in there and Borges writes, almost instantly I saw it, the garden of forking paths with the chaotic novel, the phrase several futures, not all, suggested to me the image of a forking in time rather than in space. A full rereading of the book confirmed my theory. In all fictions, each time a man meets diverse alternatives, he chooses one and eliminates the others. In the work of the virtually impossible to dis disentangle, Chewy Pen, the character chooses simultaneously all of them. He creates, thereby, several futures, several times, which themselves proliferate and fork. This is the explanation for the novel's contradictions. So he goes on um, about this, this idea, and you know, it's, it's metafiction as well, because he's talking about um, this idea in a fiction about a novel as well. And I think it's interesting just to consider, in, maybe in relation to that quote, the way that when we talk about literature in in criticism when we're writing about literature um you know we we use the present tense so we 
we talk about the actions of a novel as taking place always in the present because the idea is that you can always go back to that page and read it again and it will still exist um, in its present moment. So this happens. Um, she says this, you know, you you talk about it in the present because the time is continuously taking place. And if you think about that concept in terms of these um this this idea of the the parallel universe and the way that the way that time um, can move into different spaces as well, one might consider the way that um, time itself can be seen this way. Maybe right now, as I'm recording, is is always the present, even though you're going to listen to this um, if you do, like um, a month from now, or maybe later than that, even. But you know, is this moment as I'm recording still the present when you are listening to the recording? Um, or has it very concretely moved into the past? So and this uh, quote from the New York Times about uh, Borges, it says, Particles and the Paradox of the Perceived is the name of the article. They say, let us admit what all the idealists admit, the hallucinatory character of the world. Let us do what no idealist has done. Let us look for unrealities that confirm that character. We will find them, I believe, in the anatomies of Kant and in the dialectic of Zeno. We have dreamt the world. We have dreamt it resistant, mysterious, visible, ubiquitous in space and firm in time. But we have left in its architecture tenuous and eternal intersections of unreason so that we know it is false. So in other words, we have this, this idea of our world that is dependent on um, space and time being fixed. And actually, you know, we know as soon as we start to poke around um, that that's not true, that there's a lot more to question. Um, and then there's a lot more to figure out. And Borges tells us he does this through his fictions in trying to discover maybe what's really going on in the world or what's really going on in our in our perceptions of it. So I'll share with you a couple of book lists um, in the links uh, about uh, parallel universes. And again, as you can imagine, there's, you know, there's a ton in the kind of sci-fi and fantasy world that that deal with this topic. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned before, it's not only in the realm of of sci-fi. Now, one of the writers that I think does this a ton and does it really well is Haruki Murakami. When I've taught Kafka in the Shore in the past, I mean, students just love this idea of the parallel universe running through the book. And it's there are these portals to um, different times, um, either they're kind of real historic times and people, um, people who were fighting in World War II, for example, or there are these kind of strange and frightening characters that enter into these different portals. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting book on many levels. But the idea of the parallel universe really has made my my students think about it a lot. And I used to do this project about the meaning of life. So allow the students to present um, in a short presentation, what they see as the meaning of life. And we were looking at this from an interdisciplinary perspective as for an epistemology class. And so I remember one student who um, is now a physicist, actually. Um, he was a senior student, um, like year 13 or grade 12 diploma student. And he, he proposed that the meaning of life is parallel universes. And what he meant by that was that um, basically it demonstrates our ability to have free will. Um, and he had a very interesting um, case he proposed, and he used Kafka on the shore as his kind of springboard for it, but also what he had learned um, in physics class and through his own investigation. So that was really um that was really interesting. And, you know, Murakami does this also in IQ 84, in Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World, uh, in Killing Commendatory, which is a quite recent book, not the most recent, I think two or three back. So I'll just read you one passage from Killing Commendatory by Murakami. And this is in the chapter called Eternity is a Very Long Time. It's chapter 54 at the beginning. Um, 
and there's this man with no face who appears um, several times in the story and it starts with that the man the tall man standing before me had no face he did have a head of course it sat on his shoulders in a normal way but the head lacked a face where a face should have been was blank a milky blankness like pale smoke his voice emerged from within the emptiness like wind from a deep cavern so you can also think about the black holes in this passage as well um, and of course the title is about time eternity is a very long time so he's kind of playing with most of the concepts we're talking about today the man was wearing what looked like a dark raincoat the coat ended just short of the ground so i could see the tips of his boots peeking out its buttons were fastened up to his neck it was as if there was a storm on the horizon and he had dressed for it i stood there rooted to the spot unable to speak from a distance he had reminded me of the man with the white Subaru Forester or Tomohiko Amada the night he had visited my studio, or again the young man who slayed the commendatory with his sword and killing commendatory. All were similarly tall. A closer look, however, told me he was none of them. He was just the faceless man. A broad-brimmed black hat was pulled lower over his eyes. The brim half concealed the milky emptiness. And this um, also has shadows then of the doubling effect, like the article I mentioned and linked for you um, does in connecting, um, connecting parallel universes with a kind of a doubling. I can hear you and I do understand, he repeated. I didn't see his lips move, of course. He had none. Is this the boat landing, I asked. Yes, said the faceless man. This is the boat landing. Only from here can one cross the river. I must travel to the other side, as must all. Do many come? The man did not reply. My question was sucked into the void. There followed an interminable silence. What is on the other side, I asked. The white mist over the river concealed the far shore. I could feel the faceless man steadying my face from within the emptiness. What is on the other side depends on what you are seeking. It is different for everyone. And so Murakami is is constantly giving us these kind of passages to another space. In this book, there's also a kind of um, more physical portal, I would say, that a girl um, in the story just kind of drops down and enters and the world becomes completely different. So Kafka and the Shore also has this kind of portal, this stone that needs to be moved to um, to stop or to enter the portal either way. And... You know, Murakami is telling us with the last part of that passage that, you know, it's in a way we we create our own portals to enter. We it's this idea of free will um, that you know my my student was interested in that we have that free will perhaps to to move into a different space and time if we if we allow ourselves to be open to it. So it's maybe a really abstract idea, but then Murakami is able to put it into um, these really specific narratives and the way that even though it is um, really fantastical, the things that happen, um, the kind of the main narrative running through remains something that is in kind of, you know, although it is a fiction, the real world. And, um, you know, if we read the rest of it, maybe more metaphorically, um, you know, we can read a parallel universe in a different way. Um, and when he was talking to the New Yorker about this book, um, he talked about this idea of using parallel worlds quite a lot. Um, and so the article is called Haruki Murakami on Parallel Realities. And he says, my basic view of the world is that right next to the world we live in, the one we are all familiar with is a world we know nothing about, an unfamiliar world that exists concurrently with our own. The structure of that world in its meaning can't be explained in words, but the fact is that it's there, and sometimes we catch a glimpse of it, just by chance, like when a flash of lightning illuminates our surroundings for an instant, and the New Yorker asks, was Alice's adventures in Wonderland a reference point for you um, for the rest of the novel, too? Are you, like Comey, obsessed with Lewis Carroll? I doubt there's a child anywhere who hasn't been enchanted by Lewis Carroll, says Murakami. I think children are drawn to him because the world he depicts is a completely self-contained parallel reality. It doesn't need to be explained. Children can just experience it. And so I think that quote shows us that maybe we don't always have to understand on a scientific level to understand a phenomenon. I mean, that might be a relief for those of us who are novelists who want to use elements of um, physics in our stories. Um, 
And, you know, sometimes we do a lot of science, you know, that is eventually explained on a very detailed level and proven, theories that are proven, start out as just observations that, you know, either a lot of people have had for a long time and it hasn't been proven, or the way that we might intuit something that we just, that we think about. And so it's not, um, you know, it's not wrong to start hypothesizing about the world in this way without the backup of all the research um, in whatever area it, you know, it needs to move into. And that's why I think fiction is a great place to play around with it, you know, and, and um, on my yoga culture um, publication, which some of you know about, I was looking at consciousness and the research around that um, by neuroscientists, but also the way that um, ancient yogic texts talk about consciousness and then looking at it on a variety of different ways. And I think that consciousness is is something that, um, you know, there's a lot of debate around it in the scientific world as well. And of course, it's central to the way novelists write their stories, right? The way that um, an individual understands their reality. You know, just by reading a lot of fictions, we are in a way studying consciousness because we're we're understanding the way that different people experience their realities. And so, um, you know, this kind of work in turn could help scientists to understand what consciousness is. It can go back and forth. And I think that... You know, like I've talked about with um, Mary Midgley, the philosopher's work, it doesn't have to be a hierarchy that, you know, science is right and it's on the top. These are things that are being questioned all the time. And why not um, look at them in fiction? Why not allow, you know, even the way that children see the world, as Murakami suggests, to be to be valid and to be um, to be used to push also scientific ideas further? Um, so one of these books from childhood that I remember and I recently received a really beautiful um, copy of from an aunt of mine is called A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. I'm not sure how many of you have read it as, as kids or more recently. Um, and as the, ti- as the title suggests, um, she is playing with time, which I'll talk about next. Um, but she's also bringing the children in the book into this kind of parallel universe. And so in chapter five on the Tesseract, um, she also includes she also includes um, an allusion to Alice in Wonderland, like um, Murakami does, as well as Shakespeare's The Tempest. So I'm just going to go to that book for a moment to share with you a short passage. So in this passage, um, Mrs. Who, who's kind of showing the children the way, um, quotes Cervantes and says, experience is the mother of knowledge. Um, and then she's talking about this, the dimensions of the universe and the way that we travel within it. And she says, that is because you think of space only in three dimensions. Mrs. Whatsit told her. So there's Mrs. Who and Mrs. Whatsit. We travel in the fifth dimension. This is something you can understand, Meg. Don't be afraid to try. Was your mother able to explain a tesseract to you? Well, she never did, Meg said. She got so upset about it. Why, Mrs. Whatsit? She said it had something to do with her and father. It was a concept they were playing with, Mrs. Whatsit said, going beyond the fourth dimension to the fifth. Did your mother explain it to you, Charles? Well, yes, Charles looked a little embarrassed. Please don't be hurt, Meg. I just kept at her while you were at school, till I got it out of her. So then they start to explain the different dimensions and the way that they experience them and perceive them. And the whole time they're in this kind of alternative universe already. Um, and there's also a play with... Um, there's a play with language in this universe. There's a play with the way that um, the children perceive um, their memories as well. So it's just it's just a really fascinating book. And the last one I'll mention in terms of parallel universe is Four Three Two One by Paul Auster. So this is a huge, a huge, huge, huge novel. I think it's about nine hundred pages um, by Auster, and it's a um, it's almost like a choose your own adventure, except that there's four iterations of this life and the chapters kind of go through like 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. And then we have 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. And you'd think it would be very hard to follow along, but it's, it's somehow it's, it's not. Um, and it's kind of these, these four different, um, 
forks that this life could take um, and not to give much away in at least one of the versions the chapters turn into blank pages when Archibald the protagonist dies in in that version of the story so um, he plays around with a lot of the ideas that he's looked at in his earlier novels um, Oster does and he shares with us kind of I guess different ways of maybe not just experiencing, but also seeing the world through through Archibald and these these four different um, possibilities. And he makes this question, you know, are these all kind of happening simultaneously, or um, was there a choice maybe toward the beginning that um, catapulted in him into one realm or another, and the others cease to exist? So it's something that he questions. So lastly today, I just want to talk about time um, briefly. Now we could spend, you know, easily another hour or two talking about different ways to understand and reflect on time. Now, one book that I read recently, which just, wow, I mean, it, it probably it uses all these concepts as well, um, but it plays with time in a fascinating way is Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. Um, and he each chapter is from a different time sometimes he comes back to different time periods and places um but there's this kind of portal of ideas as well as people and books moving between the times um he's got the handle of a book drop as a kind of portal to a different world and the entire book is this homage to um, libraries and librarians um and books themselves and so you know the books become become portals as well and there's this kind of imagined book at the center of everything so there's the future and there the past but they're also all mixed up um for the few protagonists which he shares with us and you know sometimes the our experience as readers of time in the book sometimes it really slows down um for example, as a terrorist approaches the library, we have what seems like ages as this happens to experience the sequence of events and reactions to it. And at other times it speeds up very quickly and we move across years very quickly. Um, and so, you know, what he's doing with time is really amazing. You know, Wrinkle in Time, as I mentioned, it's it's doing some interesting things with time um, in terms of time travel as well. You know, there's loads of stories out there about time travel and portals. You know, it's it's always going to interest us. There's a book my son has about um, about dinosaurs loving tacos. I don't know if any of you have seen this. It's sort of a quirky book. And then they move through time portals to try to keep the dinosaurs from eating a spicy salsa because they go crazy with the spicy salsa. So time travel is going to be, you know, in kids books, in adult books, in loads of films, you know, Bill and Ted's adventures, whatever it might be. It's all over the place, right? Um, one book, a more classical one I love that does this is Orlando by Virginia Woolf, um, where the protagonist um remains the same person at the kind of the center the self is the same but the title and even the gender of the person um well the sex as well so physically as well um changes and this person moves through different time periods and spaces so it's a really cool book i just want to share with you um a quick a quick passage to hear a little bit more what virginia wolf is doing Okay, this is on page 219 of my copy. Ten times the clock was struck. In fact, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. It was the 11th of October. It was 1928. It was the present moment. No one need wonder that Orlando started, pressed her hand to her heart, and turned pale. For what more terrifying revelation can there be than that it is the present moment? That we survive the shock at all is only possible because the past shelters us on one side, the future on another. But we have no time now for reflections. Orlando was terribly late already. And then I'll read just one more short passage on the reflection of time. And indeed it cannot be denied that the most successful practitioners of the art of life, often unknown people by the way, somehow contrive to synchronize the 60 or 70 different times which beat simultaneously in every normal human system, so that when 11 strikes, all the rest chime in unison, 
and the present is neither a violent disruption nor completely forgotten in the past. Of them, we can justly say that they live precisely the 68 or 72 years allotted them on the tombstone. Of the rest, some we know to be dead, though they walk among us, some are not yet born, though they go through the forms of life. Others are hundreds of years old, though they call themselves 36. The true length of a person's life, whatever the Dictionary of National Biography may say, is always a matter of dispute. And so Wolf is questioning um, both our perception of time and time itself. And she's questioning the way that the present and future, uh, sorry, the future and the past um, sandwich the present. Um, what does that mean? Does it really give us safety in that way? Or should the present be our safety because it's what we're experiencing? So there's a lot of questions brought up by Wolf, as always. And I'd love to hear what you think about Orlando and what she is saying about time to us. Um, now, I wrote a little bit about kind of the idea of expanding time in the past um, through writing. And I'll share a link to that to that article with you. Um, I really like to play with the idea of time. Also, in the first novel I published, um, I I play around with time a lot there. The narrator, right at the beginning, she is she knows she has um, a, a brain tumor that will kill her, and so she's very interested in time in a different way. And the way that memories and the present and the future all mix together. Um, was really a subject of what I was looking at there. And at one point, I even thought about time narrating the story. I decided not to, but maybe in another book, um, time can narrate the story for us or maybe make an experience, uh, an appearance. So in this, in this past week in Hong Kong story, I wrote her memories timeline felt all mixed up. And so I, I also play with time in the voice that I mentioned that appears at different times. Um, and I'm also thinking about kind of the time um, that Hong Kong has. A lot of the um, filmmakers working just before the 1997 handover, for example, played with this concept of time. Wong Kar Wai uses the idea of expiration dates in Chungking Express um, to metaphorically show this expiration date for Hong Kong as a city. Um, also, you have, you know, playing with time in terms of the city itself, the work structure of the week for people working there and the way that time can be perhaps warped or unnatural in that way. Um, yeah, so I am looking at time in different ways. Somebody else you can look at is Heidegger, um, being in time, sign and sight. Uh, he questions the linear nature of time as well as its movement at a continuous rate, um, at least in perception. And he uses this this term dasein as both the human being and the type of being that humans have. So here's just one quote from Heidegger. Dasein does not fill up a track or stretch of life, one which is somehow present at hand with the phases of momentary actualities. It stretches itself along in such a way that its own being is consti constituted in advance as a stretching along. The between which relates to birth and death already lies in the being of Dasein. It is by no means the case that Dasein is actual in a point of time, and that apart from this, it is surrounded by the non-actuality of its birth and death. Understood existentially, birth is not something, something past in the sense of something no longer present at hand, and death is just as far from having the kind of being of something, not yet present at hand, but coming along. Factical Dasein exists as born, and as born, it is already dying in the sense of being towards death. As long as Dasein practically exists, both the ends and their between are, and they are in the only way possible on the basis of Dasein's being as care. As care, Dasein is the between. And so if you think of the past, the future, and the now all kind of collapsing in on themselves, um, maybe it can be a comforting idea. Um, if we think of the illusion of time, uh, there's an article by Robert Kuhn, which investigates that idea called What's Real and the Illusion of Time. He says, to appreciate time is to feel the fabric of reality. I interview physicists and philosophers in my public television series, Closer to Truth, and many assert that time is an illusion. What do they mean that time is not real? Hugh Price 
professor of philosophy at Cambridge University, claims that the three basic properties of time come not from the physical world, but from our mental states. A present moment that is special, some kind of flow or passage, and an absolute direction. What physics gives us, Price said, is a so-called block universe where time is just part of a four-dimensional space-time. And space-time itself is not fundamental, but emerges out of some deeper structure. We sense an arrow or direction of time, and even of causation, he said, because our minds add a subjective ingredient to reality, so that we are projecting onto the world the temporal perspective that we have as agents in this environment. So we think of the block universe, which is supported by Einstein's theory of relativity, as a four-dimensional space-time structure, where time is like space in that every event has its own coordinates or address in space-time. Time is tenseless, all points equally real, so that future and past are no less real than the present. And again, you can think of the way that we talk about literature always in the present tense. Um, but this idea of the block universe is in debate, as explained um, in another article I'll link for you from Quantum Magazine, A Debate Over the Physics of Time. And there, Don Falk writes, others vehemently disagree, arguing that the task of physics is to explain not just how time appears to pass, but why. For them, the universe is not static. The passage of time is physical. I'm sick and tired of this black universe, said Afshalom Elitsur, a physicist and philosopher formerly of Bar Ilan University. I don't think that next Thursday has the same footing as this Thursday. The future does not exist. It does not. Ontologically, it's not there. So he thinks that we experience it as it happens. You can't call different points in time the present from different experiences. Um, and he's not the only one. So I'll also link something from ThoughtCo in there, which is um, one that's pretty easy to digest, but then it's got some links to other articles. And, you know, I think you don't have to come to a conclusion on this idea yourself. You can have the characters playing around with it, or you can simply choose one way of experiencing time or the other to to play within a fiction and see if that um, if that makes sense to you as you as you sketch it out and as you try it out. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. And so today I want to talk about cafes, um, which, you know, my protagonist here enters a cafe. I think writers and cafe go hand in hand, so it makes sense that cafes also often feature in novels. I mean, they are also often beautiful places, um, and even if you might not find them aesthetically beautiful, there are places of culture in different ways. Um, you might see people reading newspapers or books or um, looking at art on the walls of the cafe. Often there's art that's being sold. There are places where conversations happen, where somebody can witness something either within or outside of the cafe, especially if you're on a terrace. So cafe terraces also allow you to experience um, the weather of the day, the kind of nature of the day at the same time as being in an urban dwelling. You're experiencing urban life by being a kind of flaneur, um, Baudelaire's flaneur and Benjamin's flaneur, kind of looking out at the world um, and just just observing it and taking it in and perhaps making it into a fiction that you're creating. So on the interior, on the contrast, it might feel cozier. There may be foggy windows or no windows that don't allow you to see out into the rest of the world. Um, you might eavesdrop even without meaning to on another table. Um, you can, you know, think about what one orders can say a lot about somebody um, metaphorically. So you can think about that with your characters if they're in a cafe. So coffee houses really began in the Ottoman Empire, and I have um, an article linked for you from history.com. And in the article, it says, since liquor and bars were off limits to most practicing Muslims, coffee houses provided an alternative place to gather, socialize, and share ideas. Coffee's affordability and egalitarian structure, anyone could come in and order a cup, eroded centuries of social norms. 
not everyone was pleased by this change. And that links to what I was talking about last week in terms of class structures and the rich poor gap. Cafe can be a kind of leveling place. In 1633, Sultan Murad IV decreed that the consumption of coffee was a capital offense. Murad IV's brother and uncle had been killed by Janissaries, infantry units who were known to frequent cafes. The Sultan was so dedicated to catching coffee sippers in the act that he allegedly disguised himself as a commoner and prowled Istanbul, decapitating offenders with his hundred-pound broadsword. Okay, so kind of like a grotesque... um, way of dealing with it and horrific way of of dealing with it but you can see that there was this kind of fear that um the cafe itself would spark ideas um and even rebellion um and we saw this in moving westward into europe a bit later on as well um especially in the revolutionary era so um you know if we think of the parisian cafe which is another famous kind of cafe um there is also this this revolutionary history. So um, there's an article called The Grand Cafés of Paris, A Journey to the Beating Heart of Parisian Culture. And it says here, the first cafe in Paris opened in 1672, but it wasn't until Café Procope opened 15 years later that the cafe was established as a cultural institution in Parisian life. By 1720, there were nearly 300 cafes in Paris, a number that grew to 1,000 by 1750, and nearly 2,000 by the close of the 1700s. From its earliest days, the cafe provided warmth and nourishment to artists and thinkers and fostered a spirit of community conversation and creativity that profoundly shaped Parisian life, French culture, and global society. Um, and there's another article I'll link for you, which specifically talks about how coffee fueled revolutions and revolutionary ideas, talking both about the Ottoman Empire and the American and French revolutions, um, and as, as a way for these coffee houses to create new thought. And um, of course, sort of concluding that it made kings and queens quite afraid of cafes, although they didn't always go to the um, extent of closing them down and wielding a sword to behead people who were in them. Um, But the Parisian cafe features um, in a lot of literature and also is more, has more famously been inhabited by many famous writers and artists over the years. Um, And Walter Benjamin uh, and Charles Baudelaire are two who are sometimes linked with the cafe with their work on the flaneur. So Baudelaire is talking about the flaneur and Benjamin picks up on this. Benjamin is often using Baudelaire's work to talk about the aesthetics of Paris as well and sort of theorize them and and think about, philosophize on the aesthetics of Paris and Houseman's Paris, um, the reimagining of the topography of Paris in a different way. And um, here's just a quote about his Arcades Project, which is this amazing, strange um, book that's kind of a collection of ideas and quotes. Um, and the Arcades are these these places in Paris that are um, either covered or sometimes even underground um, that have another kind of an urban life to the city. So in the Arcades Project, in his exploration of Paris's arcades, Benjamin writes of outside spaces that mirror the inside of buildings and vice versa. Hence his belief in the importance of the arcades. He believed they were able to bring together all manner of consumer commodities in an environment of mixed interiors and exteriors. As a result, Benjamin enjoyed posing questions such as whether the tables outside a cafe in an arcade were indoors or outdoors. He was concerned with the spatial, suggesting that the flaneur experiences the street as an interior. This interior unites all epochs, all parts of the world, and all phenomena of contemporary society. The flaneur, Benjamin argues, can be intoxicated by one glance, which stimulates his very being and results in a physical internalization of the material world of commodities. Cafes, cinemas, and shops in which one is invited to browse, such as bookshops, all have in common that they can be seen as an extension of the street. Benjamin enjoyed such ambiguity. He applauded the development of new dream spaces, such as leisure parks, wax museums, and department stores, and saw them all as products of a new commodity culture and as a place that beckoned the flaneur. So Benjamin draws on the way that Baudelaire sees Paris and critiques housemanization of Paris, both aesthetically and in the making the poor invisible. Um, and in, in uh, Baudelaire's poem, Les yeux pauvres, 
or the the poor eyes, the the eyes of the poor. It shows the poor looking at a glitzy cafe that Baudelaire sees as empty and meaningless. Um, so a couple of really interesting writers and thinkers. And then if you um, are familiar with A Movable Feast by Hemingway, Hemingway was known to frequent many cafes um, in Paris and um, including La Palette, which is a cafe that I really love writing at in Paris. And I wrote a piece about that, which I'll link for you, just about writing at La Palette. But in A Movable Feast, which is kind of a memoir of Paris talking about different um, writers and artists he was also in touch with there, as well as the food, as the title suggests, um, and just what it was like kind of dwelling in that space. He talks about cafes a lot, and on page five, there's one such cafe in um, Place Saint Michel in uh, in um, on the on the left bank. So it was a pleasant cafe, warm and clean and friendly. And I hung up my old waterproof on the coat rack to dry and put my worn and weathered felt hat on the rack above the bench, and ordered a cafe au lait. The waiter brought it, and I took out a notebook from the pocket of the coat and a pencil and started to write. I was writing up in Michigan, and since it was a wild, cold, blowing day, it was that sort of day in the story. I had already seen the end of fall come through boyhood, youth and young manhood, and in one place you could write about it better than in another. That was called transplanting yourself, I thought, and it could be as necessary with people as with other sorts of growing things. But in the story the boys were drinking, and this made me thirsty, and I ordered a rum St. James. This tasted wonderful on the cold day, and I kept on writing. Feeling very well and feeling the good Martinique rum warm me all the way through my body and my spirit. So it's interesting the way that the different kinds of drinks he chooses, the caffeine, the alcohol, change the way he feels as he writes his stories. Um, you know, also really talking quite self-aware about the way he transplants himself um, to a different place in his memories, a different kind of elsewhere to do his writing rather than writing about the Paris around him. I mean, he is when he writes this memoir, of course, but at the time he's looking back at a time of writing about something taking place in in Michigan, you know. And then he often also talks about the different people who come in. Just after this passage, a girl came in the cafe and sat by herself at a table near the window um, and it kind of disturbs him, right? So he's he's he says i looked at her and she disturbed me he he can't um necessarily have these these linear these linear thoughts because in the cafe there's always the unexpected it's not a controlled space or a controlled situation like you might have at home i mean to some extent and part of that is welcome because it changes the shape of the story that he creates as well um, and I'll leave you with one last book, and that is a book that combines the cafe with um, with time travel through a parallel universe. And that is a beautiful book um, from Japan called Before the Coffee Gets Cold by Toshikazu Kawaguchi. Um, it's really quite clever. There are these four kind of they're not, they they run together as one novel, but four distinct stories um, that take place in this time travel cafe um, that also has a ghost within it as well. And so you really have to kind of suspend disbelief, go into this this space that Kawaguchi has created for us, and and just kind of try to experience what he is is doing with the the characters. So right at the start, the cafe is described as a windowless basement cafe. The lighting was provided by just six shaded lamps hanging from the ceiling and a single wall lamp near the entrance. A permanent sepia hue stayed in the cafe interior. Without a clock, there was no way to tell night and day. There were three large antique wall clocks in the cafe. The arms of each, however, showed different times. Was this intentional or were they just broken? Customers on their first visit never understood why they were like this. Their only option was to check their watches. The man did likewise. While looking at the time on his watch, he started rubbing his fingers above his right eyebrow while his lower lip began to protrude slightly. So um, there, there are different protagonists in each of the four stories. You learn more about why there is this strange um, approach to time as you, as you see the different characters enter, enter the portal. 
And so a little bit later in that same section on page 13, um, it says there tends to be in any movie or novel about time travel some rule saying don't go meddling in anything that is going to change the past. For example, going back and preventing your parents marrying or meeting would erase the circumstance of your birth and cause your present self to vanish. This has been the standard state of affairs in most time travel stories that Fumiko knew. So she believed in the rule, if you change the past, you do change the present. On that basis, she wanted to return to the past and have the chance to do it afresh. Alas, it was a dream that was not to be. She wanted a convincing explanation as to why this unbelievable rule existed, that there is nothing you can do while in the past that will change the present. The only explanation that Kazu would give was to say, because that's the rule. And so there are certain rules to the time travel at this particular um, table in the cafe. And it's really just kind of wonderful and poignant the way these stories come together. They're quite emotional. They're quite, you know, you have to, there's, a, there's the ghost, there's the time travel. But I think on a different level there's just kind of this story of human experience and relationships which is really beautiful and I think that's kind of what we we see in a cafe Um, we see people taking the time to sit and look and reflect on their own or maybe to read and discover something or perhaps they're sitting and and speaking to someone else and you know or maybe they sit alone and they end up speaking to someone else who's who's at the cafe and they share this kind of moment together. Um, So I think cafes are really kind of wonderful, magical places. Um, And wherever I go traveling or living, I always try to look for some special ones. And I think, you know, there's so many different characteristics that make a cafe um, sort of ripe for creativity or a comfortable space to sit and you know part of that is maybe the coffee itself if you love coffee like I do um but it might also be the the view or the people who enter the space or the music that's played you know there are so many factors that can change the way you might experience one particular cafe to another so you can also tell us about your favorite cafes in the comments or the ways you might consider using the space of the cafe um, or a particular cafe um, in your work. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative, and let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 